0: Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. First Samuel chapter twenty-five is where we're at together today. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been traveling verse by verse through the book of First Samuel. That's just part of the DNA of who we are here at Redemption. We just we open the Bible and we go through it. That's part of what we do. And so we are in First Samuel chapter twenty-five. We're going to look at the first half of this chapter together, uh, verses one through twenty-two. I happen to know a, a really successful businessman. Um, there's a certain, certain guy that I know. He's very wealthy, like ridiculous wealthy. If I told you the amount of money he makes, you would say, wow, uh, it, is, it is incredible. He's very charismatic. Everybody loves this guy. Everybody wants to be around him. He has massive amounts of influence. And from the outside, it seems like he has everything, everything that everybody would want. But what most don't see and understand is that he's actually a workaholic, He's one of those guys that works and works and works and works and teaches the people who are around him to work the same way to the point of never taking time off, not not really honoring the way that God has built rhythms into our lives and the idea of taking Sabbaths, taking rests, taking time off, those kinds of things. And, And the thing is that he is... He is so strong in the idea of being driven and having a very strong work ethic, but that actually becomes a liability to him by limiting the impact he could have in many other ways in his life, including his family. And his life is inappropriately defined by the success or failure of his job. You, You know that that's not who you are, right? You're not your job. You're not the thing that you do. That's, that doesn't define who you are. And when you inappropriately define your life or define who you are or your value by your job, then it's very easy to get swept up within this. Now, we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses, and you're probably aware of your primary strengths and your primary weaknesses, one, one or two. If you're not, then look to the person to your right or left, and they'll tell you. Okay, they know what your primary strengths and weaknesses are, and they can they just be just be quiet and write it down. Okay, just when the, when you ask, don't don't offer reasons why. Uh, just listen. All right. Now here's the thing: we are typically conscious of our weaknesses. It's easier for us to see our weaknesses. We're typically conscious of those. And so we don't allow them too much power or room in our lives. And that's a good thing. It's good to be conscious of your weaknesses. It's good to be aware of areas that you may be weak and not allow them to control things. But if we're not careful, our strengths can be the things that sabotage what God made us for. That's a weird, way to, weird thing to understand, isn't it? That, that the strengths that you have could be the thing that sabotages what God made you for and what he's actually doing in your life. Here's how Oswald Chambers said it and it's our big idea this morning, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. If you have a strength in your life that's not a guarded strength, you're not thinking about it, you're not holding it back, you're not restraining it, then it can actually become a double weakness. Like This man that I know who is very driven, very centered on his work, he actually is, the strength that he has has become a weakness in his life because it's draining things out of his life that that shouldn't be draining, all right? So we have to be be mindful of such things. And that's what we're looking at together in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. So we're gonna break this uh, this half of the chapter down into four parts today. We're gonna go through it piece by piece because it's sort of a longer section. Uh, So we'll take one part at a time. Uh, The parts are this. The first one, verse one, David's friend is dead. Then verses 2 through 8, David's service is rendered. Then verses 9 through 13, David's character is insulted. And finally, 14 through 22, David's vengeance is provoked. All right, let's pray, and then we'll continue on. And Father, we thank you so much for your goodness today. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word today, and we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would lead and direct our lives, that you would give us the conviction and the courage to go the way that you want us to go. Lord, show us the areas in our lives where we may have strengths, but we're not submitting them to you. And because we're not submitting them to you, they actually become liabilities instead of strengths in our lives. God, help us to follow you by faith in every aspect of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, chapter 25 in 1 Samuel is a contrast to chapter 24. Okay, so if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we went through chapter 24, and we saw how David has this incredible height of faith and restraint and godliness in his life where Saul is literally served up to him on a silver platter. Remember, Saul goes into the cave to because he's got to go potty. He needs a potty break, okay? And David happens to be in the same cave and his men say, go kill him, bro. This is God delivering your enemy into your hands. And David sneaks up and instead of killing him, just cuts off part of his robe. And David's actually convicted about ruining Saul's clothes, right? You remember that if you were with us a couple weeks ago? If not, you can check it out online. Uh, It was a great study together, all right? So this happens, and then we roll right into chapter 25, and chapter 25 is actually a contrast to chapter 24. He goes from this incredible height, and this display of restraint and mercy, to a terrible low of murderous intense in chapter 25. You see the very thing that David shows tremendous strength in in chapter 24 is what overtakes him and puts him in a sinful position in chapter 25. So let's look at verse one together in this first piece, David's friend is dead. Chapter 25 verse one, then Samuel died and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him in his home at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And so here we have the, the scene sort of open. It's a transitioning sort of statement from chapter 20, uh, 24 where David leaves and you know, Saul goes home and they, they kind of just, they're, they're divided after this, this encounter together. But, but then it says in verse 25 that Samuel died. Excuse me, chapter 1, uh, chapter, <laughs> verse and chapter is getting mixed up in my head. Chapter 25, verse 1 uh, is where Samuel dies. Now, these words they provoke a sense of tragedy a sense of loss a sense of of mourning i mean this book is written after this guy Samuel, right, that's titled after him, and, and he's the, the opening character. He's the one who, who when we started the book of, of 1 Samuel all the way back in the beginning, his parents were the one who were barren, and his mom, Hannah, was at the temple, or at the tabernacle crying out to God, begging for a son, and the Lord heard her cry, and this miraculous son, Samuel, is born. And Samuel lives his entire life dedicated to God. She, she dedicates him early. She takes him down to the tabernacle that he would live there as a, a, a toddler or young child. And he lives there his entire life, literally serving God for his entire life. He, he's this amazing man lived in life, uh, lives a, who lives a life in service to God. He's not a perfect man, right? We saw some flaws within him, but he's a faithful man. And this is a very, uh, this is a very um, a big thing, a very big deal, a very sad passing, and the loss of his presence is felt by by everybody. And though Israel failed to honor him in life, they wouldn't follow his direction. They wouldn't honor what the Lord was doing through him at all times. They do, they do honor him in death. You see that there in verse 1? They gather together and they mourn him, and so they're honoring him. Now, there are a number of things we can gather from these three simple words. Then Samuel died. And I want to point out a couple of them for us this morning. The first one is this, that even the most godly people among us must pass through the doorway of death right? This, it's like the world is the Titanic, right? The ship's going down and everybody's going with it. That, that's, that is just absolutely the truth. There is no way out of this except through the doorway of death. And that is a very good thing for us to consider. You will not live forever the way that you are right now. This world will not continue on getting better and better. In fact, this world is not getting better at all. The best way to describe this world is like a shipwreck, and what we're trying to do is save as many people as possible from this thing because it's going down. And so the truth of the matter is that we are all going to face the reality of our death. We all will die. I don't care how godly the person is. I don't care how amazing their life was. We're all going to die. That's a very simple truth. Secondly, is this, no matter how greatly God uses a man or woman, it's a temporary assignment. That that you are always an interim minister of the gospel. Did you know that you're a minister of the gospel? If you're in Christ, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, if you have received the salvation that's provided by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you've placed your faith in him, then God has called you as a minister of the gospel, Just because I'm standing in front of you with lights shining on me and yelling in a microphone, that doesn't mean I'm the only minister in the room. Does that make sense? We are all commissioned into the ministry of the gospel. God has given you the the language and the uh, message of his glorious gospel to carry into many areas of life. You will meet people and talk to people I will never have the opportunity to meet and talk to. And you're the ones who have the opportunity to bring them to Jesus. And yet, no matter how amazing some, some servant of God might be, no matter how much impact they may have, they're temporary. You're always a temporary minister. You're always an interim minister. You see, Samuel dies. It doesn't continue on forever with Samuel. He has to transition out. And the third thing is this, that God always begins a work with a man or a woman, but his work will never stop with that man or woman. Yes, God does begin. God will provoke you. God will start something new with you. He'll give you a desire. He'll give you a passion. He'll, start, he'll take one person. Who will, he'll say, I want you to go do this thing. I, I remember uh, with my wife and I, that's how this church started. This church started in our hearts and in our minds four years before it ever came to fruition. Uh, two years before it ever came to fruition. Uh, and, and the reality of that is because... It started with the call for us to have this desire for something. God always starts with a person. He always starts with a person, but his work is never contingent on that one person. If it's really the work of God, it's going to continue on because just as, as Samuel dies, God has someone else in mind. David Guzik says it like this It's important for us to notice that God's work did not end with Samuel's days on, on this uh, when Samuel's days on this earth ended. God's work is never dependent upon one man. In verse 1, it's written that Samuel died, but it also is written that David arose. God has one man, and then he moves on to another. God's work may begin with a man, but it never ends with one man. That's just the way that God works. God's work isn't completely contingent upon any one of us. His work will continue on if it's truly the work of the Lord. And as Samuel is laid down in the grave, David is lifted up. Secondly, not only do we see that David's friend is dead, but we see that there's a transition in the entire storyline as David's service is rendered in verses 2 through 8. Verse 2 says this, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman uh, of good understanding, of beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Caleb. Now here, there's a transition in this to where David leaves the Canyon Spring of Engedi. That's where he's at in chapter 24. This beautiful uh, oasis in the middle of a, a barren desert wasteland is is the the vision that you should have in your head. He leaves this spring of Engedi and he heads back uh, near the wilderness of Ziph. And Maon, which we read about in chapter 23. That's where David heads back to, all right? So he's going back here, and he's in a specific area known as Carmel. When you look through the Bible, there are two different Carmel's. One of them is in the north, and one of them is in the south. One of them is, is uh, up, uh, you know, kind of on the coastline, uh, and then the other one is down south below Jerusalem. This is the southern one, down below uh, Jerusalem. That's where uh, he is at, and the scene shifts here in verse two to a certain man, and we're given some important details about him. I want to point out, point out four important details about this guy that we are told about what's happening with with this certain guy. There's a certain guy, and we're told there in verse two that he's very rich. Now, very rich is sort of a, uh, a an obscure term, and so we're given a little bit of details as to understand and grasp how how rich he is, we're told he's got a flock of 4,000, okay? So what this would paint in your mind at this time is that this guy's got a massive business and a huge staff that's managing the business, okay? So he has this business of uh, raising sheep. And then we also see there in verse 2 that not only does he he have all of these, uh, these animals there, but he's also, at the end, he's shearing his sheep In Carmel, so so shearing your sheep. If you're if you're a farmer or or not a farmer, a rancher like this, uh, then what you're gonna this is harvest time. You've spent all year working really hard. You've protected the sheep. You've cared for them. You've uh, bandaged their wounds. You've put them in the right places to make sure they eat well. You've you've uh, kept all of the different uh, predators away. And now it's a time to reap the rewards. This is a time of joy. It's a time of generosity that we're bringing in the harvest. And thirdly, we see there in verse 3, the name of the man was Nabal. Now, for you and me, we read this and we go, okay, that's a weird name. Uh, that's kind of crazy. But if you read in Hebrew, then what you would read is, is this. It would literally say this. The name of the man was fool. Like, did this guy's mom hate him that bad? Wow, you named your kid fool? Anybody named their child fool? You're like, I wish I did. Um <laughs> I would describe them better than whatever, Um, but usually we don't name our children based off of the kind of things that they do or whatever, things like that or some sort of prophetic, I think like my oldest daughter Haley, I think it means something like lover of the sea or something. And she kind of, she's okay with it, but she's not a lover of the sea for sure. So we don't really give meaning to names as much as we like the sounds of them. Or, or maybe, you know, we have a family member that was named that way. But this guy's named literally Fool. It's not like, well, it could mean fool. No, it's, it's the word fool. It, that's all it is. And so it's kind of a weird thing when you read that. You have this, this man who is named Fool. And then right after that, he's married to a certain woman. Named Abigail. Now Abigail, um, we are told a couple things about her right there from the beginning. She's a woman of good understanding, that she's an extremely wise woman, that, that she and we're gonna see her wisdom play out in the rest of this chapter, that she has some incredible ability to, to discern a situation, to pick out the right thing to do, and to take action and to make stuff happen. Not only that, but we read as well, she's, she's a, a woman of good understanding and of beautiful appearance. Okay, this, this phrase, beautiful appearance, this phrase is only used to describe three women in the whole Bible, okay? So, you could say that, you know, Abigail is one of the hottest three ladies in the Bible, I guess, if you wanted to say it that way. Uh, she's, she's in this circle with Rachel, remember Rachel, uh, from uh, Genesis chapter 29, verse 17, and also Esther, Esther chapter two, verse seven. Remember, Esther won a beauty pageant contest in order to become the the queen uh, of um, Persia. Uh, And so, this this is who Abigail is. So, she's super hot and super wise. And, you know, you read this and you're like, how did the super hot, super wise lady get stuck with the fool? Well, remember, this is an era when they did arranged marriages, right? So, her parents arranged this marriage for her, and it's probable that she got married to this guy, not for the man, but for the money, right? Her parents are like, this is a smart business investment. We're going to make sure you're taking care of Abigail. So here, you get married to the really, really rich guy. And, and so that's where she's at. But in our day and age, this isn't uncommon as well, is it? That even though we have the ability to choose, sometimes you see people and the, they're, they're together and you're like, how did he get her?" Like, what in the world did he do? And you're thinking that about me and Micah, I'm sure, because I think that all the time. Like, how, what, Lord, thank you for blinding her eyes and tricking her into marrying me. This is amazing. And so, so, so too it is today. And, and maybe, maybe on a serious note, maybe you are in this kind of situation, Maybe you're the one who's trying to honor the Lord, you're trying to live in a way that's wise and godly and discerning, and and you're married to the fool. Whether that's a man or a woman. What do you do? What do you do? Well, what you do is you honor the Lord in your marriage. And we're gonna see that that's exactly what Abigail does in this chapter. She doesn't sabotage him, she doesn't, she doesn't go after him, she doesn't look for a way out. She honors the Lord in that marriage and trusts that God will do what only God can do. It, it's a very difficult thing to do when you're married to a fool. But it's something that, that is uh, honorable to the Lord when you stand and you fight for that marriage relationship. We also are told in verse 3 that he's harsh and evil in all of his, doing, his doings. And it's very possible that this is actually how he gained his wealth by being harsh and evil, that he he basically has gained and maintained his wealth by foolishly doing things that are underhanded and evil things. We're also told one final thing about this guy in verse three that he was of the house of Caleb. Now, Caleb should invoke within you some ideas of an, an honorable family lineage, right? Caleb was the, one of the two spies that went into uh, e- from Egypt into the promised land and, and gave a good report. It was Joshua and Caleb, and that was it. And, and so he's of this family line, and so that's an amazing thing. But Caleb also has another meaning. The word Caleb, the actual word. Means dog. And so you're like, oh, I love my dog. My dog is so nice and fluffy and and cute. And you know, if you're like me, you have dogs that are very, very tiny. Mine don't weigh more than four pounds. And so they're just these little lap dogs that, you know, they're just, they serve no purpose at all. (laughs) They have no value. (laughs) Well, they make noise. I guess that's a little bit of value. So they can warn me so I can get up and get my shotgun. But, um, They're just cute. That's all they are. Don't think that when you think dog in this time. These people would not understand dog that way. Dogs are wild pack animals that are vicious and dangerous. Okay, so there's a picture being painted about this guy. This isn't a good thing. All of this paints a very specific picture of this guy, Nabal. He's a vicious, dangerous, evil kind of a man who has gained his wealth Probably through impropriety. And you're like, what's that got to do with David? Well, verse 4, right? Verse 4. When David heard, uh, heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who, uh, who lives in prosperity... Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now, I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David He's connected to all of this because he's living in the region. And he's been living in this region, in this area of Carmel. And his presence has provided security for Nabal's shepherds. That's really what's going on here. Now, in in this era, in this time, you have to think back to this, that providing this security is actually a good thing. Because in this time, groups of raiders and marauders would travel through the land and they would literally just come upon some shepherds, kill them and take all their stuff. That's just what they would do. That was just common practice. There, there's no police system here. There's no government oversight of any of this kind of stuff. And so these guys would be taken advantage uh, advantage of fairly regularly. And it's even more dangerous on the southern end of Israel because their borderline, especially in this area, right there with the land of the Philistines who would commonly go on raids to go and take all of the, or of the uh, people of Israel and their stuff. They would murder them and take their things all of the time. So this might seem as David comes and he says, hey, listen, bro, we've provided this security. Now it's time to pay up. It might seem like extortion, but that's not at all what's going on here. It's not like David did something and he's trying to back this guy into a corner. He actually provides a very necessary and very helpful service at great personal risk and Nabal received it. He received this service. He, he allowed David to provide this service. He didn't say, hey, you know what? We got it. Don't, don't worry about it. He allowed David to protect them and to take care of them and to make sure that his things were, were provided for. You see, it's just simply time to get paid for the service that was rendered. And, and David pr- comes to him with tremendous wisdom in four big ways. Number one, he comes to him in peace. Did you see that there? He says in verse six, and thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you. He comes to him in this this aspect and measure of peace. He he comes not with a a show of force. He sends a delegation of some young men. And he says, go in my name and, and speak a blessing over the house of Nabal. David probably knows that this guy is wretched and evil and wicked, and yet he still wants to be a blessing to the guy and says, listen, we're coming in peace. Secondly, he comes in integrity. Notice it says there that he says, uh, your shepherds were with us. We didn't hurt them, and we didn't take anything from them. You can even ask all of your shepherds. We treated them with dignity, with respect. We didn't take a single thing from them. We, we have operated with you in integrity. We've cared for your men, and we've taken absolutely nothing. Also, not only peace and integrity, but David sends his men to speak with humility. Do you see that there in uh, verse 8? He says, uh, please give whatever comes to your hand to, to your servants and to your son David. He, he says, "We're just your servants. We've just we've just served you." We've, we're he, he's speaking in terms that honor Nabal. Uh, I, I'm just like a son to you. I'm just a, I'm a young man. I'm just trying to do my best to be a blessing and to honor you. And then finally, he comes in vulnerability. He has peace, integrity. Uh, he comes with humility, and he comes with vulnerability. There's no set fee that he has for this. He just says, whatever comes to your hand. You see that there in verse 8? Whatever you decide is fine. Uh, Whatever you think is fair, you can render that for the service that was provided. Well, let's see what Nabal says and what he does in our third piece together as David's character is insulted in verses 9 through 13. Verse 9 so when David's young men, had, uh, men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all the words uh, in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered um, David's servants and said, "'Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall so I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men that I do not, when I do not know where they are from?' There's a there's a very intense exchange that happens here. And Nabal responds in a way that's true to his name. This is like a foolish Way to respond. He goes right at these guys. He he's a at, at the very least. Nabal should have invited David and his men to come to to the feast, the celebration that they're they're at. You remember that in verse? I think it was verse eight. He said, "We we come to you on a feast day. This is a time of celebration. It's the time of shearing. It's reaping the harvest that has come in." At the very least, he should Nabal should have invited David as a guest of honor and said, "You can you, you just come. Thank you so much for all that you've done. Let's eat together. Let's celebrate together." For all that God has provided. And and, and yet, instead, he insults David. He calls him foolish. He calls him rebellious. He says, You've just rebelled against Saul. You're supposed to be serving Saul and there with him, but you're just a rebellious servant who's run away, and I'm not going to pay you anything. Look at verse 10. He says this. uh, Nabal, uh, Nabal answers, and he says, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? Now, now, when you read this, don't think for a minute that he has no clue who David is. That's not, not true at all. I mean, everybody knows who David is. Remember, he's the giant killer. He had the number one song uh, on the charts, you know, Saul slain his thousands and David his ten thousands and everybody was singing it. So he knows exactly who David is. There's no question in his mind. In fact, he even knows who David's dad is the son of Jesse. So, so it's not that he doesn't know who David is. What Nabal is doing is, he, he is uh, he's saying that he doesn't recognize David as the king. That's what he's saying. That, that David has this claim to the throne because he's been anointed by Samuel, and Samuel is now dead, and so he's saying, I don't recognize you as the king. Saul is my king. You see, it's harsh Evil, foolish men like Nabal who thrive under a king like Saul. That Saul provides the perfect environment. For his evil to thrive and to grow and for his business to develop and for him to take more and to amass more wealth for himself. That's exactly what happens under men like Saul. And so Nabal loves this because he's just like Saul. He loves Saul to be the king. There would be no benefit for him if David was king. In fact, David in his righteous rule would bring down the type of business that Nabal is building. And this isn't just true with David, but this is also true with the son of David, with Jesus. That Jesus is rejected as king by many because under his rule, there is no place for corruption. Here's what it says in John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is speaking here, and he says this, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. The judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. This is how Jesus describes it. Basically what Jesus is saying here is that our natural lives are a sinful offense to God. And the only way to make that right, the only way for that to be taken care of is by faith in Jesus who paid the price for your sinful offense against God. There's no amount of good stuff that you can do to make it right, there aren't, and there's not enough money that you can give to make it right, there aren't enough good things that you can pile up that are gonna outweigh your bad things that you've done in life, that's just not how God works. There's only one way, it's that Jesus has died in your place and your faith in him is what wipes the slate clean and you're seen as just, as perfect and amazing as Jesus before God. What an incredible thing. But the only way that you can do that is through faith. You see, God will pardon our rebellion, and he will change us. He will develop us into the people that he meant us to be, but he will not accept our evil as if it was good. That's what Jesus is saying. People love the darkness rather than the light. And when you won't submit to King Jesus, when he, de- he decides this is right and that is wrong, and you decide, no, Jesus, you've got to take what I think is right and make that good, Jesus doesn't play that game. He doesn't go down that road with you. He will not because Jesus didn't die to make you king. Jesus died to take the rightful place in your life as the king. So it's just submission to him. So Nabal is rejecting King David in favor of King Saul. Verse 11, did you notice this? I tried to emphasize it as I was reading. But in verse 11, we see that the word my is repeated four times in this single verse. Over and over and over and over again. That he's just talking about himself. And that's how how evil, wicked, arrogant, self-centered people talk. They just always talk about themselves. They they just always want to puff themselves up. They always are thinking about themselves. And he foolishly believes that because it's in his possession... It is his property. That's what Nabal thinks. And we can be suckered into thinking the same thing, that because it's in your possession, it is your property. Here's how David Guzik says it. The Lord wants us to see everything that we have belongs to him. It's his. Friends, it's not a matter of we give God some and the rest is ours. Biblical generosity isn't saying this is mine and I'll share it with you. Biblical generosity is everything I have is the Lord's and you can share it. You see, so long as we see ourselves as owners instead of stewards, that, that we, are, we are managing the stuff that belongs to God. If we think that it's ours and not his, then we, we, see our, we see it wrong. And we become these people who live in rebellion against biblical generosity. The only way to rightly see everything is that it all belongs to God. And when you see it that way, you manage it correctly. Verse 12, so David's young men turned on their heels and went back. And they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and, went about, and about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now, now think about this for a minute. Put yourself in the position of being one of these 10 young men that went to go deliver this message to Nabal. They say, hey, Nabal, pay us whatever you think is fair, and he insults you this way and uh, basically says, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not paying you anything, right? These guys, I'm sure their eyes got huge, and they thought, you want me to tell David what? Like, do you know who David, remember the giant killer? Like, you want me to say this to him? Like, well, okay. So they turn around, they go back, and, and they tell David, and he immediately responds to this insult by, uh, and this theft, which is honestly what it is, he's rendered a service, and now the lack of payment is just theft. So he ins- responds to this insult and this theft by telling everyone to go get their weapons. David's a fighter, right? You, you provoke a fighter, it's not gonna go well. You don't poke the bear and say, let's just see how crazy he can get. They just don't do that kind of stuff because it doesn't really go very well. It's not a smart thing to do. Basically, David is saying, oh, you don't know me? I'm about to show you who I am, all right? All right, everyone? Get on your weapons, let's go. Let's ride. That's kind of David's, David's response, all right? So not only do we see David's friend is dead, his service is rendered, and his character is insulted, but fourthly and finally, finally, his vengeance is provoked. That's what's going on here uh, in verse 13. All right, verse 14 says this. Now, one of the young men told uh, Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we, did not, uh, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as long as we accompanied them uh, when we were in the fields. They were uh, a wall to us, both by, day, uh, by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against us, our master, and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. Here, this transition takes place where David's vengeance is provoked, but one of the young men that was actually there uh, serving in the household of Nabal, he overhears the whole thing, and he thinks, you know what? I got to go tell Abigail. This is, this is not good. Nabal is completely blind to what he's just done. He has no clue what he's just done. But this guy is smart enough to realize this is not a good deal. And so he, he goes and he talks to Abigail. And he says, the way that Nabal spoke to, the, to, this, to David's men was, in verse 14, he reviled them. He reviled them. Warren Wiersbe says about this word, reviled, uh, in his commentary, he says this: the Hebrew word describes the shrieking of a bird of prey as it swoops down to tear its victim. It's used to describe Saul's hungry men as they fell on the plunder and butchered the animals. 1 Samuel fourteen thirty-two and fifteen nineteen. His words reveal the heart of a man who is selfish, arrogant, and rebellious. That, that, that's what this this does. It's this. So when you hear this idea that, that they they were uh, he reviled them, it's just think of like. An eagle just ripping apart a prairie dog, right? That's that's the thought that should be in your head. That's kind of what's taking uh, taking place here. And so he realizes, the servant realizes this is not a good thing. And as he talks to Abigail in verses 15 and 16, he verifies that David had tremendously helped them. They were with us. They were so good to us. Uh, they they had immense integrity while they were with us. And in verse 17, he knows that she's wise and that she's going to clean up the mess that Nabal made. You see that there? He says, therefore, know and consider what you will do. He says, listen, I, I, I can't talk to Nabal because he's a moron. That's basically what he says there. He is such a scoundrel that nobody can speak to him. Like this guy, he is so hard-headed that when he's made a dumb choice, he's just gonna run the whole thing off of a cliff and then when everything crashes down around him, he's gonna say, why did that happen, right? He's that guy. And so he's like, I can't talk to this guy, so I'm gonna come to you because I know you can clean up his mess. That's basically what happens here. So let's see what she, what she does. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sayas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey Uh, that she went down under cover of the hill and there was David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. So Abigail, what does she do? She throws together a party platter, right? She's like, hey, let's just get some food together and let's just go meet David and let's see what we can do. She throws this party platter together and sends some servants ahead of her with it. And and, and what this does is displays a, a number of things. But think about this for a minute. How much stuff is there? She puts together a couple hundred loaves of bread, some wine, a couple of, uh, of animals already dressed. Like she's got a bunch of food literally uh, just right there for the taking. It displays the immense wealth uh, of Nabal, but it also displays the ridiculous claim that Nabal says, well, I can't give this to you because I'm going to be taking it from my own men. It's just, it's already there. And the guy literally, we'll see next week, has no clue it's even gone and that it's even it's even been taken from him taken from him at all. You see, um, Abigail put all of this stuff together also in a moment's notice. This was just laying around the house. This is all the stuff that's just kind of here and there, and she's able to just kind of throw it all together in a moment's notice. There is an overabundance of way more than enough. And, and Nabal is just saying, yeah, I don't have enough to give to anybody else. I gotta keep this all for me. In reality, she's only doing what Nabal should have done, isn't she? She's just doing what he should have done. This, this isn't extravagant, it's not over the top, it's just, it's just doing what should have happened. James 4.17 says it like this. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. There are a couple of types of sin. There are sins of commission, where you know it's wrong and you do it. That's that's a a sin, the things that are wrong and you do those things. But there are also sins of omission, not just commission, but omission, where there's stuff that you should do and you leave that stuff undone. The, The Bible says that those things are sinful. And so Nabal is acting in this foolish way, and he puts his entire household at great risk by simply not doing what he should have done. Is that convicting for anybody? Does that pierce your heart in any way? That, that there's this tremendous risk that comes to those who are around you, not by doing wrong things, but by not doing good things. That, that's, that's a pretty big thing for us to consider. You see, there are those things that you know that you should do that are clearly, clearly written in Scripture, but I think that this speaks to even deeper issues of those issues where the Holy Spirit brings conviction into your heart and you know He's prompting you to go a certain way. You know He's prompting you to do a certain thing. You know He's directing your path in a certain way, and you just refuse to listen to Him. You refuse to go the way that He wants you to go. And when you do that, you put not only yourself, but all those around you at great risk. Verse 21. Now David had said, surely in vain I've protected all this that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed and all that belongs to him. And he, was, he has repaid me evil for good. Verse 22, may God do so and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. You see, this, these verses here in verses 21 and 22, it's sort, of a, it's, it's sort of a contrast. In verse 21, David lays out a very clear case of exact, he's totally right. I did good to this guy. I took care of this guy. I've done it in vain. He's insulted me. He has taken from me. He's robbed me. He's treated me scornfully. He's repaid me evil for good. And then in verse 22, he jumps really far to something that he absolutely should not be doing. You see, this is far more than a show of force. David's coming for blood. He, he says, I'm going to kill everybody because this guy didn't pay me what he owed me. A little bit of an overreaction, you think? <laughs> maybe a little bit. Maybe, maybe he needs to eat some, you know, cakes of figs and chill out, you know, for a, for a minute. Uh, and that's kind of what, what we'll see Abigail is doing with him. You see, he has this amazing, crazy overreaction. And, and really this section ends with a cliffhanger as David and Abigail are sort of gonna, they're on a collision course to meet together and we're like, what's gonna happen? Well, well, we'll pick this up next week and finish it. But here's the thing that I wanna conclude with. I wanna ask this question. Why is David's response so drastic to Nabal? I mean, the worst that Nabal's done is just insult him and didn't pay him what he owed him. That's the worst that he's done. Why is it so drastic to him and yet so restrained towards Saul who's literally hunting him down to murder him? Why is there such a big rift, a big ravine, a a giant canyon between these two responses? I, I think there's probably four reasons. There's four probable reasons why. See, David's frustration with Saul I think it's probably being directed at Nabal here. David's had all this pressure that he's been living under for years. Saul's constantly hunting him. Saul's constantly coming after him. It's just like this perpetual barrage of insanity. And he's been, he's been trying his best to live under, and he's narrowly escaping. And then he comes through this really high time in life where he doesn't kill Saul, and God, God came through for him in this tremendous way. And, and then the very next thing that happens is this scoundrel doesn't pay him, and now he wants to go kill the guy. I, I, think, it's, I think it's pent-up frustration being carried out against the wrong guy. That's probably something that's going on within the heart of David. But also, Nabal doesn't hold an anointed position within Israel whatsoever. Saul does. Saul's been anointed as king. And so David says, I won't raise my hand against Saul's anointed. Nabal's just a fool that probably deserves to die. And so David's like, I'll oblige you. You've... Check. Done. You know, that's just kind of where David's at. No, No big deal. Right? Thirdly... Uh, Nabal has no authority in David's life in whatsoever. No position of authority whatsoever. David was willing to see Saul as a position of authority, and so I'll, I'll honor that. But Nabal has no position of authority in his life, and therefore, he's willing to treat him differently. This is this is a, a key insight to the heart of people, just so that you know. Hey, those are, just real quick, if you're single, right? If you're single, maybe you're a teen or you're a young adult, don't worry so much about how that person treats you. I'll, I'll speak to the girls because I have four daughters. I feel like a dad to the girls, okay? Ladies, listen. Don't, he's gonna treat you good because he's trying to win your heart, okay? He's, try, he's just trying to get you to like him. He's gonna treat you nice. Don't worry about how he treats you. Well, worry about it. If he treats you bad, let me know. I got some friends with big guns and we'll come deal with them, all right? By guns, I mean arms and weapons. Anyway, so... Uh, worry about how he treats people who are subservient to him in some way. How does he treat the server when you go out to eat? How does he treat the person who he thinks is beneath him in some way? That's the true insight into his heart. That's where you're gonna see the true character of who that is. Because uh, he's gonna be on his best behavior with you, but maybe not with everybody else. And here David is failing this miserably, right? He's willing to treat Saul well, But this guy, Nabal, who doesn't really have any position whatsoever, I'll just murder that guy, no problem. I got no issue with that whatsoever. And the fourth issue that I see here, or probable reason, is that David here, in this section, he doesn't write any psalms around this time in his life over and over again for the past few chapters, we've been citing multiple Psalms that David has written in these times in his life where he's consulted God, he's prayed to God for help, he's asked God for direction and God has come through, but David, there's no prayer, there's no consulting God. David is provoked, he's mad, he's like, he was Bruce Banner, now he's Hulk, right? He's just gonna go smash stuff and then we'll just deal with the consequences later. That's just a foolish way to deal with things, but this is where he's at. He's going after it in this crazy way. And David, his mind-blowing victory in chapter 24 when he doesn't murder Saul is followed by this insane overreaction in chapter 25. How, how can this happen? Remember our big idea? An unguarded strength is a double weakness. You see, David's strength is that he's a fighter. David's strength is that he's willing to, to go to extreme ends in order to do what's Right? He he was even willing in chapter 24 to fight himself so he didn't do what was wrong, but that strength wasn't guarded, and so it's become this weakness in his life in chapter 25. You see, we're not strong enough to perpetually make all the right decisions all the time. Circumstances of life, pressures, timing, the weariness of our souls, difficulties, all of these things, our fallen nature, all rise and stack up against us, and we're not perfect. And the reality of our imperfection must drive us to the one who is perfect, King Jesus, to ask him for his help. To to see that he has the strength that we need. I want to conclude with this quote from Alan Redpath because I think it sums this up so beautifully. Alan Redpath says this, Does it not show beyond all possible doubt that I cannot stand against the enemy of my soul unless the Lord upholds me moment by moment? This story tells me that however long I may have been on the Christian path, however often I may have overcome one temptation or another, however many times I have defeated sin in one area, it can strike in another and crush me in a moment. I may have overcome great temptation by the grace of the Lord. I may have stood my ground against the fierce onslaught of the enemy in one way or another and yet be tripped up by the smallest pinprick that gets under my skin. You see, you need Jesus more today than you've ever needed him in your life before. And when you understand that truth, when you understand that reality, that I need Jesus today more than I ever have any time in my past, you move forward in the victory that he supplies. So here's the question. Will you trust Jesus? Will you submit to him? Will you allow him to be King Jesus? Or will you try to dethrone him and declare yourself as God of your own life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to open it together and to study it. And we thank you, God, that you have, are, are so willing to show us these flaws and failures of the heroes of scripture. God, thank you that we can see so clearly the way that, that David struggles and has issues and t- trials and temptations. And we pray that, God, we, as we see ourselves reflected in David's failure, that we would come to you with our failure, seeking your forgiveness, and your strength would flood in and cause us to become more like you. Lord, we love you, and we're so grateful for you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.